Well, let us turn now in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, where we'll pick up at, at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more faithfully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit that he would come as we study your word. Help us, Lord, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this passage, and all for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, last week we saw how Peter now takes his teaching about the true nature of the gospel and its implications for our lives, and he shifts his focus from the content of that gospel to the source of that gospel. In school, we were always taught, and I think probably you were always taught as well, that when doing math problems, we had to not only give our answer, but we had to always show our working. We had to show not just that we knew the answer, but we had to show how we arrived at that answer and demonstrate to the teacher that we hadn't just guessed. And it's a good habit. In school, it forced us to think through our problems, to slow down and to truly work out the solution to the problem we were presented with. But really, I think it's a good life lesson. In everything in life, really, if we are to live and act with intellectual honesty, it is important for us to get our minds around not only the positions we hold, the beliefs we hold, but why we hold those positions and believe those beliefs. In all of life, it is important that we are able to show our working. And that really is what Peter is doing here as he has moved on in verse 12 to begin to show his readers why he preaches the message that he preaches and opposes the message that the false teachers had brought with them as they infiltrated these churches in Asia Minor, today's Turkey. It seems that Peter is now preparing for his death. Maybe even this is his parting missive to these congregations that he seems to have known and loved. You remember in John chapter 21, in verses 18 and 19, Jesus had said to Peter that the day would come when, as an old man, his hands would be stretched out and he would be dressed and carried where he did not want to go. It was a, a somewhat enigmatic uh, saying of Jesus, but of course, John doesn't want us to be confused, and so in a parenthetical comment, he clarifies for us that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death 
Peter was to glorify God, taken, of course, by tradition to be a reference to Peter's own crucifixion upside down in Rome. And it would seem that Peter knows that the time is drawing near for that death. As he says here in uh, verse um, uh, 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Whether this is reference to a second revelation that has come to him recently that he will soon die, or maybe he's just done the math and he knows that he's an old man. And Jesus had said that as an, as an old man, he would die. And so he has run the numbers and realized that the day must be coming soon for that prophecy of Jesus to come true. Whatever it is, Peter knows that soon he will not be around anymore to write any more letters to these congregations. And so he wants to equip these saints now for the long haul. He doesn't just want to give them the what of the gospel, but he wants to anchor them in the why of the gospel as well. He wants to build in their minds and hearts a convictional understanding of the gospel so that they know not only what they believe, but they know why they believe it so that they can withstand those who will inevitably come and try to undermine it. You remember we said last week that one of the easiest ways for the false teachers to counter what Peter was saying was to simply try to reduce it down to being an alternate opinion. Just being able to write this off as Peter's particular hobby horse, Peter's unique point of view or his personal emphasis. Right? Do you remember we speculated a little bit, but we could even go back and say if these false teachers knew anything of Peter's going off with the Judaizers. Remember in Galatians, Paul talks about having to counter Peter to his face. These false teachers saying, well, Peter's just a lawman. He just loves the law. And so the way that he is teaching you to apply it, well, that's just coming out of his own proclivities. That's his own point of view. And we can imagine the false teachers then just saying, well, we've got an equally valid alternative for you, congregations. And of course, Peter is keen here. Now, having stated the what of his apostolic gospel, now to show the, the why of the apostolic gospel, to show that his teaching, sir, but to give his, his working here so that his readers see that his teaching doesn't just come out of his own particular preference, but is in reality drawn out from what Peter himself has been taught. So last week in verses 16 through 18, Peter explained how his gospel flows out of his experience at the transfiguration. That transfigura uh, transfiguration of Jesus before James and John and Peter, giving a glimpse of Christ's future glory and the future glory of the kingdom that he had come to establish as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter just confessed him to be. Remember, Peter has in chapter 1 given a profound, a, a concentrated even, explanation of what we receive from God in our salvation in verses 3 through 5. And he's described a, a life of uh, 
a life that is in union and communion with God. He's described our salvation in terms of transference, moving from our death and sin into life in Christ, or to use his terms, moving from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire to becoming now partakers in the divine nature. It's this idea that that once in our sin, we were strangers to God, that once in our sin, we were even enemies against God, but now in Christ, by union with Christ, through our faith in Christ, we have been forgiven all of our sin and reunited to the God from whom our sin separated us. And from verse 5, Peter's gone on to describe the necessary consequences of receiving such a glorious salvation for our present lives, giving, you remember, that, that robust explanation of the role of sanctification in the life of the believer, saying that our, our good works don't obtain salvation for us, but they necessarily flow out of that salvation. Right? Peter's described the life of the believer is one that is characterized by our new identity in Christ, helping us to see the life that is consistent with our profession of faith in Christ, with the forgiveness of our sins, and with our reunification with God. In short, Peter has been saying that our justification naturally outworks in sanctification. Or in other words, being made partakers of the divine nature in Christ naturally manifests itself now in a holy life. And we said that by appealing to the transfiguration, Peter is saying that his emphasis on holiness, these dynamics of salvation, this relationship of faith and works that he has been so keen to press into the minds and hearts of his, his readers. It doesn't just flow out of his personal proclaimed, but instead it flows out of that glimpse of the coming kingdom that he received on that mountain. Right? Peter had beheld Jesus gloriously radiant on that mountain. Right? Do you remember how he's described his face shining like the sun? His clothes radiant, white as, as light. It was a, a foretaste of, of the world to come. It, it's, a, it's this very same thing that John beholds in Revelation 1, isn't it? A picture of this glorious and, and righteous Jesus that's almost burning with, with holiness. It's a picture of all of sin's corruption and defilement put away in a kingdom now that that radiates in holiness. And Peter's point to his readers is, you understand that is where you are headed in Christ. What you see on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is that glimpse of, of good things to, to come. And so that's where our hearts are to reside now. Now that we have come to the glory and excellence of God, verse 3, now that we have escaped, verse 4, from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, we are to be a people now pursuing holiness because we are a people destined for holiness then. But now, 
Peter, still continuing on with the why of his gospel, he now changes tack. And he says to us that there's another reason for holding on to this full-orbed apostolic gospel that he has taught. And he says the other reason that we can be sure of what he is saying is because it is what we find in the Old Testament. There's a, a British game show we sometimes like to watch. It's called uh, Countdown, and uh, it, it sounds incredibly boring, but it's, uh, it's a game show of uh, word and number puzzles uh, that have to be solved in 30 seconds. Uh, and the, uh, I won't go into it all, but when it comes to the numbers rounds, the contestant picks a random assortment of, of numbers, and then there's a generator that picks a final total. And in 30 seconds, they have to rearrange those numbers and do all kind of math in order to achieve that, that final total. And it's really extraordinary to watch these minds. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, well, one plus five, six, and then that's about as far as I can get. But they're all timesing, you know, these massive numbers and dividing them and doing brackety things that I haven't done since I was like 17. And uh, they come to the answer and it's extraordinary. But what's also extraordinary is that you will have multiple contestants. You have two contestants competing against one another and they'll both come to the right answer, but they'll have come there in completely different ways. And of course, once they give their answer, they have to show their working. And I think what Peter is doing here is he's, he's doing that same thing, right? His answer is that, that the believer must now pursue a holy life because of all that we have received in Christ and because of the nature of the kingdom that we have been brought into in Christ. And he has said, look, one way that you know this is true is because of the transfiguration. But now he says, here's another way. Here's another way of working that will bring you to that same answer. And he says, listen, this is not just all dependent on my personal experience on that Mount of Transfiguration, but he says, really, anyone can reach this same conclusion if they work through the revelation of redemption in the Old Testament. And what is particularly significant here is that Peter even goes so far as to say that the prophetic word, which is just another way of saying the Old Testament, is actually a more sure witness for what he is saying than his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we read that and we think, that, that's, that's extraordinary. And if I was to ask you, would you rather behold the transfigured Christ or have a Bible, I think almost all of us would instinctively say, I would rather see the transfigured Christ. Right? The idea of seeing Jesus in the flesh is one that I think we just naturally default to. So there's a, a place I can't, I can't remember and I couldn't find it this week, but there's a place where Sinclair Ferguson uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit. If, if you want to understand uh, the Holy Spirit better, uh, 
there is no better teacher than Sinclair Ferguson. And there's somewhere in his teaching on the Holy Spirit where he comments on Jesus' statement in John 16, 7. When Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And Ferguson says to us that, that we hear that and we struggle to comprehend how that is better, how that is actually to our advantage. If you were given the choice, would you rather have Jesus in the flesh in this room right now, or would you have the Holy Spirit? And you reflex to say, we'd, we'd have Jesus, please. And it, we, we reflex to this idea that the beholding Jesus is, is, must be what's better. And I think it's the same here. Would you rather behold Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Would you rather be there with James and John and, and Peter and see the corner of the veil lifted up so that you can behold this, the true glory and dignity of Jesus? Or would you rather have a Bible? And I think our instinct is to say, I'd rather be on the mountain. I'd rather see Jesus radiant in his glory. I'd rather get the foretaste of that coming kingdom. It's just not something I could ever imagine passing up. Right? We can't help but think how formative that experience must have been. And it was, no doubt. That's why Peter appeals to it here. But Peter says to his readers, make no mistake. What you have is in no way inferior to what I have had. You remember that was one of his points right at the beginning of the letter. Verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I think he's saying the same thing. He says, yes, I've been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was enormously significant, but understand, readers, you have the prophetic word. You have the Old Testament, and that is a, a more sure witness to what I am teaching you. That is, I think, if we were to rephrase it, he's saying that is a, a, a better witness to what I am saying. Now, how could, he, how could he say that? Why would he say that? Well, first, I think, because the Scriptures of the Old Testament are an objective witness to the gospel that he and the other apostles preached. Right? As important and formative as the transfiguration was, as, as central as it was to Peter's grasp of the interaction of the coming kingdom and the present life, it was still, at the end of the day, his experience. And it doesn't take much to imagine how his detractors would undermine this. Well, that's fine for Peter to say, but, but that was his subjective experience that is unrepeatable, it's unverifiable. But his experience from the point of view of his detractors remained only ever that, just his experience. Now, of course, we know better. Right? We see the transfiguration attested to in the Gospels. We see Peter's testimony here preserved in Holy Scripture for us. We read this 
from the vantage point of seeing Peter's experience on the mountain solidified as part now of the prophetic witness of Scripture. But remember, in the cut and thrust of the first century, remember in the, in the midst of this transitional period in which the apostles ministered, there was an opportunity for these false teachers to come in and respond casting doubt on Peter's faithfulness by simply saying that it was only his experience, and none of us can verify that. And so, by appealing to Scripture, Peter now moves out of himself, and he points to this external testimony that is independent of his experience and which confirms and verifies his experience. What he saw on that Mount of Transfiguration, not necessarily a new revelation, but an illustration and application of all that the Old Testament had foretold of the Redeemer. Remember, everything in your Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. Every passage, every story, every chapter, every verse, every book in your Old Testament, what is it about? It's about Jesus Christ. All of it written to fill out that initial promise that we are given in Genesis 3.15, when God promises that He will bring a son of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That initial promise, that proto-evangelion, that first gospel in our Bibles, when God says that He will not let evil win the day, but He will bring a Redeemer who will destroy evil and by implication reunite the people of God with the God from whom their sin has alienated them. And you understand that every single word that you read from Genesis 3.15 on is written to help you understand Genesis 3.15 more and more fully. All the rest of the Old Testament simply teasing out that initial promise, helping us to understand the totality of that saving work first promise there helping us to understand the breadth and the depth of that saving work first promise there, helping us understand the depth of our need for the salvation that is promised there, helping us understand that magnificent grace and mercy of God that comes to meet that need. It's what all of the poetry in the Old Testament's about. It's what all of the historical books are about. It's what all of the wisdom literature is about. It's what all the apocalyptic sections are about. It's what the prophets proclaim and anticipate. All of it telling the one story of the coming redemption of this glorious Redeemer who would come to wipe away sin and guilt and restore a fallen humanity to the knowledge and righteousness and holiness of its, of its original dignity, being made in the image and the likeness of God. All of it telling the one story of a Redeemer who would come to bring us up out of the degradation and death of our sin, wiping away all of our guilt, removing it, as the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, 
atoning for our sins so totally and completely that God can promise, as the prophet put it, that He would forget our sin and remember it no more. This glorious Redeemer who would bring us back to God and establish us in a great and glorious and holy and righteous kingdom that God promised to Abraham. None of that, Peter says, none of it comes from the imaginations of the men who wrote about it. None of these Old Testament writers just sat back and wondered to themselves what the work of the Redeemer would be like. None of them just sat back and engaged their imaginations to philosophize about what a a world of redemption might look like. These writers, from Moses to Malachi, didn't speculate or, or even reason about what the Redeemer would do. But instead, as Peter says in verses 20 and 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, borne along, as the old translation puts it, by the Holy Spirit. All of the writers of the Old Testament, Peter is saying, they were all writing words that they were given by God. Now, you understand, this is not teaching mere dictation. It's not that these writers heard a voice from heaven and then wrote down what they heard. Sometimes they did. But most of the time, the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament for that matter, they wrote their own words. Right? That's why we have differences in style amongst the various authors. That's why there's different various emphases depending on when they were writing and to whom they were writing but the words they wrote all words inspired by the holy spirit all words given by god through these men and so that means everything that they said it is true and it means that everything they said is reliable and it's perfect, and it means that everything that they wrote was written from the perspective not of mere men, but written from the perspective of the one who knew exactly how redemption would be accomplished and applied, and who knew the end to which redemption was moving. Don't you remember how Paul describes God's position to history in Ephesians 1.11? He says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's what these men wrote. The story of a God who rules heaven and earth, working all things according to the counsel of His will to bring about the redemption He promised to reunite sinners to themselves, to make them even partakers of the divine nature. And this is crucial that we get our minds around this. Philosophies can get closer to the truth. 
but they can also lead further away from the truth. Opinions and arguments can be more right, but they can also be less right. Religious experiences can be profound and important, but they are always inherently fleeting and often in need of something else to give them their full meaning. Which is why Peter, having experienced what he experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration, does not realize the full significance of it until much, much later. But in contrast, the Word of God is sure and steadfast. The Word of God is reliable and robust. The Word of God stands the test of time. The Word of God is inerrant and infallible, and all because the Word of God carries with it the character of its author, who is God, who cannot lie, and with whom, James says, there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's what Peter wants his readers to hold on to. He'll, he'll soon be gone, but the false teachers won't be. Maybe, maybe these specific ones will be, but there'll always be others waiting in the wings to come in and, and fill the vacuum. And, and Peter wants his readers to hold on to his way of working. He wants them to get the answer, but he wants them to understand how he arrived at that answer. Yes, we are to hold on to the significance of the transfiguration. It's, it's why he's mentioned it. It holds a crucial place in helping us understand the nature of the kingdom that we have become citizens of in Christ. But when Peter thinks of his readers going on to the future after his death, he says that it is the Bible that will be he says here, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. It is the Bible, first and foremost, that is our sure and certain guide. As we hear false gospels, as we are drawn away by false teachers, as we feel our hearts being drawn away from the apostolic teaching, it is our Bibles that will keep us sure and solid until the day of Christ's return because it is a constant and an unchanging witness that will bring us safe into that eternal kingdom. And so, Christian, get to your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Spurgeon once said, a man whose Bible is worn out rarely is. Get to your Bible. Hold fast to it in the midst of these last days. Study it. Prioritize the public reading and preaching of the Bible. Get to know it. Not just as the source of pious platitudes or little motivating cliches, but get to know it through and through. Get to know the warp and weft of Scripture and how it all ties together to give us this glorious picture of this full-orbed redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Listen to the voice of God speaking through these pages, telling you again and again of the depths of your sin and your desperate need for a Savior. 
and listen to the voice of God speaking through these pages, telling you of the perfections of Jesus Christ as that Savior that you so desperately need. Listen to the voice of God inviting you and your wandering heart again and again to behold the beauties of Christ and the grace of God and lay hold of him again and again until he brings you safely home. Life in this world is fraught with danger. Some of it will be blunt and brutal like we're seeing in Ukraine. But for most of us, that danger will always be subtle and seductive. Christian, if you are going to be kept safe, you need to hold fast to the Bible as your anchor, keeping the eyes of your heart fixed on your Savior who will bring you safely home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we thank you for our Bibles, this, this more sure testimony to the veracity of the gospel. We thank you that on every page of our Bibles, we read more of the saving work of our Lord Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to read, give us hearts to understand, and may we be men and women who are brought on from a superficial Christianity, the one to one that goes down through the depths of our being, that we would understand more of the nuances and particularities of the gospel, and that we would be robust Christians, able to withstand the tossing here and there by this world of trouble. Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus. Fill our hearts with wonder at the redemption that He has achieved for us. Give us hearts of expectation, longing for that coming glorious kingdom, and help us to be now men and women who pursue a holiness in this life that we might give you glory in thought, word, and deed. Father, bless us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we have been talking a lot about sanctification as we have gone through Second Peter, and we've talked a lot about it because Peter talks a lot about it. It is a, a real need for us to pursue a life in conformity with the law of God. But we know that our human hearts are often hard, and we are often prone to default to a legalistic understanding of the place of the law in our lives. Whenever we talk about a pursuit of holiness, there is still, I think in every one of us, there's still a root of pride that is tempted to believe that we are talking about doing something that will earn God's favor, or at least earn a little bit more of God's favor for us. And so as we continue to think about this, as we continue to go through Second Peter and Peter's robust spurring us on to the pursuit of holiness in our lives, it is a mercy of God that we are brought back this morning to 
the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes that he received from the Lord, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we gather around this table this morning, we gather, as Paul says, as Jesus says, to remember. But you understand this is more than the mere recollection of a past event. But we come here to remember in the sense of laying hold again of the glorious good news that we are justified, we are forgiven, we are reconciled to God, not through something we do, but through what our Lord did when His body was broken and His blood was spilt. And so as we gather around this table this morning, we come in a sense to recalibrate our hearts. Our hearts that are so often knocked out of tune by the temptations and the trials that we face. Our hearts that are so often knocked out of gospel tune by external things, but also by internal things. We come to once again remember that all of our salvation is wrapped up in the finished work of Christ in His crucifixion. Believer, Christian, it was through His death that the forgiveness of your sins was secured. Christian, it was through His death that the smile of God upon you was secured. Christian, it was through His death that you were brought, 1 Peter 1.3, to the glory and excellence of God. All of your salvation, all of your redemption obtained by Christ and granted to you simply by faith. And so, yes, we must think of holiness. And we must do business with sanctification. And we must pursue conformity to the law of God. But you understand, this table reminds us never, ever, because we think it will make God love us. But always because we see in the death of our Lord Jesus that radical, first love of God for sinners like us. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not yet a baptized member of an evangelical church in good standing, if you have not yet publicly professed your faith in Christ by becoming a communing member in a faithful church, then please just let these elements pass you by as they are served. What we are about to do, it's, it's not just a ritual, it's not just symbolic, but this is, as we just heard Paul say, a profession of our faith in Christ. It is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is our security before the throne of God. If you cannot say that this morning, then please do not eat this bread and drink this cup. But as they are served, contemplate with us the great love of God for sinners in Christ and see the gospel freely offered to you this morning.
and let go of your sin and put your faith now in Christ and join us in the unsurpassed joy of reunion with God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we come to your table this morning, we come to remember our salvation in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this bread and for this cup. And we pray that these would not merely be external signs to us, but rather true means of grace, realigning our hearts again with the gospel and reminding us again that we, filthy sinners, receive the love of God freely and graciously. Oh Lord, we pray that you would come and bless us as we gather around this table, that you would do good to your people, that even you would come and meet with us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.